0: Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. I'm delighted to have Dave Brock, CEO of Partners in Excellence, and the author of the Sales Manager's Survival Guide. Dave and I have both been in sales well over 30 years. Dave, would you mind giving a quick introduction to your journey so far and how you got to where you are?
1: Thanks so much for inviting me to participate. I really appreciate it. Just Pleasure. kind of a brief background. is. I'm actually a theoretical physicist by training and ended up working with a startup company. It failed miserably, and I discovered there's a lot more to business success than hot products. And so I I went to the dark side, started selling for IBM in the early 80s, and since then have kind of sold for technology companies, done turnarounds for a lot of High technology companies, either the GDP of sales or CEO, and, and kind of have progressed my career since then. I think hopefully learning from my mistakes or sharing my mistakes with mm-hmm. others so that they don't have to repeat them.
0: Well, in my experience, there's nothing better than a damn good drubbing to teach you a valuable lesson. If you look back over your career, can you think of a couple of fantastic mistakes that you learned from?
1: A couple of things is. Well, one is early on in selling is making it about what I sold and not what the customer is trying to do. And that's what we see as a fundamental problem in selling today. I think in as I became a manager, in particular a senior manager, is failing to appreciate the importance of a strong culture and an aligned culture. I came in as a turnaround executive for a very large high technology company, as CDP of sales, and it was the company I went into had a very strong culture, and I was clearly a misfit for it. It was a, a real interesting challenge to some degree. The culture stood in the way of their success, and to some degree, my inability of to kind of build and align myself around the culture caused us to take probably six to nine months longer to turn around than it should have taken. Fair enough. So tell me this then.
0: At the moment, one of the things that I'm seeing an awful lot of is very high turnover in sales and sales management. And I know this is a subject near and dear to your heart. Tell me any idea why that's happening?
1: Yeah, well, first, maybe a a bit of background data. And this, I think, is one of the most critical issues facing sales and business executives today is if you look at the data, maybe five years ago, average tenure of a salesperson and sales manager was something in excess of maybe three years. Today, the data shows average tenure of a salesperson or a sales manager is at about 16 and a half months. So if you start thinking about that, You see that kind of turnover, if you kind of think about average onboarding, if you're in a complex B2B environment, maybe around 10 months or more. Sales cycles are 9, 12, 18 months and all that. And you start looking at that and you start seeing the math of this doesn't work out. You know, people aren't around long enough to start implementing what they've been trained to do and start driving success, and so the economic cost and the opportunity cost of this is horrible. So turnover, I think, is probably one of the top two issues facing sales executives over the next five years, and if we don't fix this, uh, sales performance will continue to plummet. I think the issue is, and if you look at some of the data, I have a blog post coming out in the next couple of days on this. Some of the data is basically around, we don't create workplaces where people want to work and stay. We don't have managers that are coaching and developing people. We don't respect our people. To some high degree, we see people becoming just widgets in a process with mindsets around these people are replaceable. And if you don't do your job, I'll find somebody else who does. And so we create these workplaces that are highly dysfunctional enough and highly toxic. And that's a leadership problem.
0: Well, this plays back to your point around culture. Because what I've observed, and in fact, I had a conversation with Larry Levine a couple of days ago on exactly this point. Leaders tend to fail to train managers. They occupy Sales managers occupy the single most precarious position of any executive position in any business. And for a while, they can get away with scapegoating their salespeople because they basically blame the salespeople for not performing. Now, if they're not performing, that's down to the managers failing to hire the right people, then onboard them properly, and then train and develop them. But if managers are promoted into a position where they are wholly unqualified, and Jonathan Farrington recently said that only 6% of sales managers are qualified to move into the role, then is it any wonder? And that I put firmly at the feet of leadership. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I think all this issue is absolutely a leadership issue. And it's not just a leadership issue within sales, it's a leadership issue within organizations. If you look at some of the Gallup data around employee engagement. Employee engagement is at an all-time low. Again, the data that we see within sales is just tragic. I I mean, with this 16 and a half month kind of turnover loop, the opportunity costs for our clients is billions of dollars. I have very large clients in the telecommunications business About 10 years ago, I was working with them on another project, and I noticed, well, turnover was 72%. You know, and I did a calculation that was costing them $1.7 billion a year. And managers weren't paying attention to that. Once they recognized it, we addressed it and started doing some things. And we found, you know, again, some things of how do we make people feel that they're valued, how do we listen to them, how do we develop them, and how do we create careers where they can succeed and contribute to the organizations. And and again, it's kind of a a crisis in the data that we're seeing. And it's not that difficult to fix, but it does have to do with culture. It does have to do with purposefulness. It does have to do with valuing people.
0: I remember reading a blog of yours. It was probably September time where leaders patiently impatient and they're frustrated because they want things to move faster. They're expecting everybody to move at the pace they want it to move. But in my experience, too often, there's massive disconnect between leaders understanding what drives their people and managers misunderstanding what drives their salespeople. Why is it that so many managers are so situationally unaware?
1: I think there are a couple of things contributing to it. One is there are a lot of managers in manager roles that shouldn't be. You know, we've just selected the wrong people and, and typically what we see is we take our very, very best salesperson, move that person into management and it's a disaster. We've, one, we've lost our, our best, best salesperson. Two is this person who can't be and doesn't want to be a manager is creating havoc with the team. So it's, one is we got to get the right people in place. I see a lot of very, very good frontline managers that fundamentally don't understand what their job is. Typically, I go and ask a manager, what's your job? And the response is, is virtually 100% making the number. And when you look at it, in reality, their job isn't making the number, the their people's job is to make the number. And the manager's job is to do everything they can to maximize their people's ability to do that. Absolutely. So managers don't understand what their job is. They aren't trained. They aren't given the skills, the tools, and coaching from their managers to do that effective job of developing people, of coaching them, of removing barriers to their performance, and so on. So, so there's some fundamental kind of basic blocking and tackling kind of issues. But then sadly, when we look at it a little bit more strategically, is while you look at anybody's annual report or 10K or whatever it is, you know, and you always put, you know, we value people. But hmm. when you actually look at it, as beyond what they say in, in the PR statements, is they don't value people.
0: I'm always reminded of the Dilbert cartoon, where they're all surrounding the boardroom table. And the manager with the funny hair says, People are, aren't our greatest asset. They come seventh after paper clips.
1: <laughs> but, you know, so I think that, that that is something. And I think it's something that, as we've seen so much of sales, a movement to transactionalizing and automating and scripting things. Is, you know, we create this kind of widget and replaceable mentality and it just doesn't work. And the data is has been there for years and years showing worse and worse performance, worse and worse tenure, and the data doesn't work. I mean, what's really interesting is where you see organizations that do create workplaces that people thrive in, people want to contribute, and they feel value, you see huge performance. So one of my clients is in the semiconductor industry, and they're the highest performing, they aren't the largest, but they're the highest performing company in the semiconductor industry They've had 115 quarters of over 17% growth, which in the the semiconductor industry is astounding. Their turnover involuntary is uh, less than 3%. The way their people work, the way their people engage customers is game-changing. And so this stuff works, and it's a company that has a very strong culture. It's a company that values people tremendously, and you see that in the results. So we want to be nice to our people. We want to create these great workplaces and all that kind of thing. This is a business discussion. It's a discussion about how we engage the people that we hire and how we make them as productive as possible and how they produce money for us.
0: This is a really interesting thing. If you ran a finance department the way you run a sales department generally, you'd be bankrupt in under a quarter. You need systems and processes to run a finance department. But what I see Mm -hmm. all the time, salespeople who wing it on hope and a prayer, they show up, throw up, quote and hope, sell and run. They manage in very similar way as well, which is basically you do what was done to you. You bang the table, say, where are the numbers? Why haven't you brought anything in? And no other department in a business can be run as slipshod and manner as so many sales departments are. One of the things that I've done with hospitality clients of mine is have all the managers work in other departments. So they work in housekeeping, they work in operations, they work in the kitchen. Same thing with the salespeople, they work in finance, they work in front office, back office, so they get an understanding of what their role is in that whole machine, and also to get people from those other departments to work in the sales department, because I think there's a massive disconnect, and they can learn from one another, but I don't see that happening very often. It's only when I've instigated it within my clients that that happens. Have you seen that happen anywhere else?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, if I look at my own personal career, I think what has made me more effective both as a leader and executive and more effective as a salesperson is I've seen a lot of functions in the organizations that I've worked in. You know, when I started out as a young salesperson, when I was promoted, I was located into another job, a, a marketing job. God forbid, for a salesperson, a marketing job. And then I went into an operations and advance finance, and then I came back to senior sales role and so on. I think that one is that gives me a greater appreciation of the role of sales and the rest of the company and how we work. Two is it makes me much more effective in talking to my customers because I worked in finance for a time, because I worked in operations for a time and manufacturing when I go talk to those customers those functions in customers, I have much greater credibility and much greater empathy because I, even though it was a short assignment, I understood that a little bit better. So I think that concept of broadening our people's skills and broadening their understanding makes them better within our organizations, but makes them much more effective in selling to their customers. I mean, one things in when I started in my career in selling at IBM. I sold to major money center banks in New York City. One of the first things they did was send me to a six-week class on banking at the Wharton School of Business. I was the only computer salesperson in a room full of bankers. I, I learned a huge amount about banking, not only what they taught us, but in talking to people who were bankers. And so that made me much more successful. So we aren't doing those things. And I think we in a rush to bring people on board, get them productive, we really miss kind of that long-term opportunity to really engage our people, to have them contribute to the corporation, have them contribute to the customers.
0: You mentioned right the head of the interview that a manager's job is to make sure that you get the best out of your people. I think it can be broken down into four parts. Hire the best people, get the best out of them, make sure they have the resources and tools they need to do their best work every day and protect them from your idiot senior management. Now, my question here is around predictive hiring and onboarding, because these are two skills that are essential if you're going to survive and thrive in a management role. But I don't see that being taught almost anywhere. So in terms of being able to template a hire, and understand what to look for as predictors of success. What are you advising your clients to do in order to ensure that when they do bring someone on board, they have a really good fighting chance of being successful in
1: post? Well, we believe real strongly in a concept called a competency model, and it's a very rich competency model. So typically when you look at people, in fact I'm doing this right now with a client, they have about it's a very large client, they have about 12 different roles, sales roles in the sales organization everywhere from like a global account manager to a pre-sales person or, or, and things like that. And I said, give me the competency models for each one of those roles. And what they gave me were a number of job descriptions. And the job description doesn't define anything about what is required to be successful in the organization. And so there are things like you know, people will typically start looking at at skills and experience and selling skills and those kinds of things or industry experience. And that all those things are important, but there are a whole bunch of things in terms of behaviors, attitudes, and cultural fits that are critical parts of the competency model that people spend no time on. So, for example, I've seen in a number of my clients they hire people that I know to be very, very, very capable salespeople who have been top performers in their companies. They come in and they're the wrong cultural fit. It's not that they're bad salespeople. They're the wrong salesperson for that company. And so people, I think, need to start looking at developing a very rich competency model. The competency model is kind of a picture of who is the perfect fit from a behavioral point of view, from an attitude point of view, from a learning point of view, from a cultural fit point of view, from skills, experiences, background, and so on and so forth. What's a perfect fit? This is a much bigger company. Again, it says that attitude in their hiring is they hire or fit because they believe they can train everything else. And it shows in the results, it shows in the low turnover, and so on and so forth. So I think we take hiring too lightly. Again, I don't know how many managers I sit down with that says, hire this person, he's the best of four people that I've interviewed, I'll give him 90 days. If he doesn't get up to speed in 90 days, I'll fire him and hire somebody else. Forget that it takes 10 months for the person to be on board and forget that their sales cycle is 12 to 18 months and so on. It's just insanity. So one is we have to know, have these rich competency models and know how to. That we have to hire through that. And then that competency model is not just hiring, but it's that competency model is where do I want them to be in their competencies, behaviors, et cetera, in a year? Where do I want them to be when they're at a senior position, and so on and so forth. So now I start looking at having a development plan. People leave companies, not because of money, but they leave companies because they see no future in their role. They see no development. They see no career development, and so on and so forth. So I think, again, it's this people issue People are our most important asset, but we aren't treating them as our most important asset.
0: Well, this is something else that really frustrates me. I mean, at the front end, recruiting uh, new hires is one thing. But the laissez-faire approach, I describe it as management by abdication, where managers don't spend enough time coaching and training and developing their veterans. When you think about it, these are the people who've got probably your best accounts, and they get stale after a while. And they really do need coaching. And if you don't coach them, you're going to lose critical accounts. If you don't lose the critical account, you may well lose the veteran salesperson because they'll feel frustrated. And as a headhunter for 10 years, the one thing that I found time and time again, eight out of 10 salespeople came to me. And the reason that they were going to leave is they didn't feel appreciated by their boss. Now, What you're doing there is you're creating the conditions for people to go to your competition and take business away from under your nose, or even worse, to set up on their own in direct competition with you. What's going on there?
1: I think somehow we treat the hiring of salespeople differently than we treat other things. So, for instance, I often pose the question to managers, If you were making a decision for, say, a a CRM system or some other tool or technology or something like that, and that decision was going to cost your company a million dollars or two million dollars, how would you make that decision? And they, I mean, they're very disciplined. They're very structured. They get other people involved in the decision and so on and so forth. And they say it's important that we make the right decision because we're investing so much money in this. Well, then I turn to them and say, well, why aren't you doing the same thing for your salespeople? Because each one of your salespeople, regardless of the role, is a multi-million dollar investment. And the investment really is in the opportunity cost, not what we're paying them, but it's in the opportunity cost. So you hire the wrong person and you lose business, you piss off customers, and so on and yep. so forth. So you're losing millions and millions of dollars worth of revenue. And people aren't making that connection, and well, they aren't making that connection that you know if I'm buying a million dollar, two million dollar, or a million pound, that's a lot more money than a million dollars. Is a million pound investment in a tool. And do that very carefully, but somehow I have a different mentality with salespeople, and so they don't understand the economics around their business. And well, once if, if managers I'm, start really understanding the economics, both in terms of not only the costs but the investments and the opportunity costs in terms of lost business, then all of a sudden you you start seeing the lights go off and say, we're doing things incorrectly. We need to change this and we need to really invest in our people and invest in getting the right people.
0: If you calculate the true cost of a wrong hire, it's typically somewhere between 35 and 135 times salary. When you take into account the cost of recruitment, the ramp-up period, training, onboarding, provisioning, legal costs, recruitment fees leads that they burn through, missed quota, lifetime customer value, referrals, cross-sells, upsells, referrals and opportunities to grow accounts. You're talking about a lot of zeros behind those mistakes. Now, what fascinates me is after you've gone through the process of recruiting them, most managers, they'll do onboarding for a week, maybe two, when I'm working with my clients, I'm talking to them about 120-day onboarding process because what I know is for the first four months, a new hire is putting their boss on probation. You know, is my boss an ass? Is this the job I was sold? Do I like the people I'm working with? Do I like the company, the products, the customers? Can I be successful in this role? Now, again, if you're going to hire somebody into a sales role, my view is you need to dedicate about 25% of the next three months to onboarding them properly. But most managers, because they're run ragged and they're busy rescuing, they're busy suffering from upward delegation, they're busy being a spreadsheet jockey, trying to manage the numbers, which is a complete fallacy. They don't make the time to onboard somebody. And if you want an A player to turn into a B or a C player inside four weeks, just have them spend time with all of your average people while you're not onboarding them. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I absolutely agree with and I think I would have a little bit of empathy for the frontline sales managers. I think a lot of it is the frontline sales managers don't know that that's their job if they know that it's their job, they don't know how to do it. Some years ago when I was writing the book, I was doing some research and you know, I looked at what is the investment in training for frontline sales managers. And yeah. in the US, <laughs> we looked at there was something like four billion dollars in being spent a year by organizations in sales training, outsourced sales training, for instance, the type of training you do and so on and so forth. If you looked at the investment in frontline sales manager training, it was less than $200 million. If you look at a lot of sales enablement organizations, you look at things like most of the sales enablement organizations are focusing on the salesperson and not on enabling the manager. So you see there's some things that we, for some reason, aren't, focusing on how do we make these frontline managers successful. But if we aren't making those frontline managers successful, we'll never maximize the performance of our salespeople. And so it ripples up to more senior management is one is, are they getting the right people in place? Do they clearly let the person understand what the job is and what the role is? Do they train and coach those people themselves? Are they setting the example of behaviors themselves of the behaviors they expect of those managers. It's not as complex as it is, is, as it sounds, but people simply aren't doing it. It's remarkable when you start addressing those issues and you address it in kind of a disciplined fashion, how quickly things turn around.
0: It's really interesting. I mean, I've just closed three sales today. And what's really interesting is that the managers are crying out to be supported and to have training. They've volunteered themselves to come onto the training. I make it mandatory. If I'm going to train a sales team, the manager has to be involved because they have to yeah. reinforce, they have to coach, and the salesperson's going to turn to them because they're their paymaster. But what's really surprises me still to this day is just how desperate managers are to get some training and to be supported in that way. Because what you're describing there is just plain and simple ignorance. And that's the easiest thing to fix. They just don't know.
1: And all the frontline managers, again, I, I don't want to just be a promotion of the book, but all the frontline managers, I get people who got the book and read it and said, aha, finally here's something that is a practical guide to telling me, helping me do my job better. And that's what people are trying to do is, I believe in the goodness of people. And I believe most managers really want to perform and do well in the job. They just don't know what the job is and they don't know how to do it. And whether it's getting training through somebody like you, whether it's reading a book, mostly I think it's the right example set by their managers and the right training and investment and coaching by their managers to them. And it's You look at it, and again, you do that because it's the right thing, but you do that because it produces business results.
0: It still flabbergasts me, though, that a bad salesperson can cost you 35 to 135 times salary, but a bad manager, that could easily have an impact across 5, 10 salespeople. And there you're talking about multiples of those numbers. And I've seen businesses fall apart because they've got that revolving door. You're talking about, what, 16 and a half months, was it? So if there's a revolving door in management, all the salespeople are basically running a book saying, okay, how long will this one last? In fact, I remember speaking to one manager, and she'd been brought on, she'd been promoted and brought on as a manager. And the CEO stood behind her at their quarterly kickoff and said, I have total faith in Joanne And there was at that point, they were running a book to work out how long she would last. And it was two weeks.
1: It's so bizarre. I'm flabbergasted. Excuse me for interrupting. I'd like to put some words in your mouth and change the words a little bit because I think it's important. I think people don't necessarily appreciate the severity of the problem. A bad salesperson may cost us. 135,000 pounds or something like that in recruiting, salary, and all the other kinds of expenses. But a bad salesperson is really costing you several million pounds yeah. in lost opportunity. And so then you multiply that, you say that 10 salespeople reporting to a bad manager, the impact is more than 10 times. That revenue opportunity because there's kind of an accelerator effect. The worst part of the accelerator effect is guess who you lose when you have a bad manager? You lose your very best salespeople. Absolutely. And if you lose, they go someplace else.
0: If you lose one of your top talent, you've got a 50% probability of losing another one within six months. That's the really
1: exactly. terrifying piece. This crisis in people and talent management, both in terms of our salespeople, but also in terms of our managers, and if we don't address that, and again, this number of 16 and a half months average tenure, if we don't address that, the opportunity cost is literally billions and billions of pounds. And it's unforgivable from if you look at it from a strict shareholder point of view, if you look at it from an investor point of view, or from a senior management or board point of view. This is unacceptable.
0: So, this is something I personally believe that HR is worth their weight in gold if you get good HR. What I don't understand is why they don't spend more attention in helping managers to become great at interview and selection, at the onboarding and the coaching side of things, because that really is what HR is all about. It's about human capital and making sure that you do get the best people and you get the best out of them. Why isn't there more alignment between those two departments?
1: I don't know. I, I think you're asking kind of the perennial silo question of why isn't there more alignment between sales and marketing where you would expect that, you know, we're all trying to accomplish the same thing and why isn't there greater alignment between HR and sales? I don't know what it is. I think it is kind of a silo mentality. I think it's a lack of appreciation of the interconnectedness in the organization is we are all dependent on each other and we all need each other to improve our performance. And as we've gone to kind of these functional specializations, we can we create these silos, and we kind of forget about it.
0: But we seem to end up spending so much of our time competing with ourselves, um, developing fiefdoms, and willy
1: waving. And it's interesting: is business, our customers' business, in our own business, is getting increasingly complex. And even if everything's going right, what we see is that complexity of our own organization dramatically draining sales productivity. So I'll move to a slightly different topic than what we are, but it's kind of related, is we have a very, very large industrial products customer. And one of their large divisions was having some you know sales performance, sales productivity issues. So we did something simple. We measured something called time available for selling. <laughs> and what that was, was, you know, the time I spent preparing to go visit a customer, the time at the customer, the time I spent follow-up. The time available for selling was 9%. I've got to
0: be honest, really does not surprise me. Do you see that as being quite normal?
1: Well, typically what we see, that's the lowest I've ever seen, but typically what we see is somewhere between 12 and 21%. So in this case, what we did is we said, well, what's happening to the other 91% of the time? The the problem was in this organization, it was everybody doing their job. But the problem was by everybody doing their jobs, it was so complex for the the salesperson to navigate and get things done that they were spending most of their time working. This is most of their stuff was highly configured complex industrial products. So they'd spend a lot of time. Working to get the configuration correctly, working to get the pricing correct, working to get the implementation plan in. So there are a lot of things of everybody doing their jobs that were simply draining salespeople's time. You know, they had a marketing organization that really wanted to learn what customers are thinking. So guess what the marketing organization did is they sent emails to over a thousand salespeople and say, tell us what your customers are thinking. And they'd give these surveys to salespeople. Well, you know, salespeople were getting distracted by this. And again, it was not any ill will or bad intent, but it was everybody doing their job. And the organization had gotten so complex that the productivity impact on salespeople was devastating. And the first year, we got them up to about 13% in Management was saying, geez, we've got, you know, a 50% improvement in time available for selling. And I just, you know, to me, that's tragic. It needs to be up, you know, 40, 50%. It's sad,
0: but that really doesn't surprise me because what I see in a lot of cases is people getting distracted with busy work. Managers being buried in reports and forecasts and reviews. Salespeople being dragged into meeting after meeting. And they spend next to no time in a disciplined, structured, rigorous manner dedicated to prospecting, which is a salesperson's number one job. I don't care whether you are an account manager, a new business hunter, whether you're working just one account. You've always got to have your prospecting radar on because you need to overstock the top end of the funnel in order that you've got sufficient opportunities going through at the correct velocity so that you've got a fighting chance of hitting your number. But too often, because they don't have enough time available for selling and for prospecting, then they need every deal. And psychologically, that sends them a message, which is not only do I need it, but I cannot afford to lose it. So they play not to lose instead of to win. They're afraid of hearing no, so they go for maybes. And they accept think-it-overs, fobs, stalls, and put-offs That then has a knock-on effect into the forecast because the forecast can't be relied on. The sales manager then beats them. They then listen to excuses, which the sales manager then takes back to the VP of sales, who takes it to the CFO, who takes it to the CEO, who then takes it to the investors. And then their share price takes a dive. Is this just blind panic? Is it habit or is it willful ignorance?
1: Again, Perhaps I'm naive or idealistic. I believe it's just lack of consciousness or lack of ability to do this. I think everybody is overwhelmed, whether it's senior-level executives, whether it's frontline sales managers, whether it's salespeople. And we get into a panic mode. We we get into doing rote motions all the time without thinking about what we're doing and thinking about what's most impactful. And so you create these kind of self-defeating cycles in organizations. And, you know, if anything, you know, one of my challenges to salespeople, sales managers, and sales executives and corporate executives is, let's go back to basics. Let's go back to some simple foundations. And it's around really disciplined execution as you and I were speaking earlier, is we have the tools. We know what we should be doing. We know how we should be doing things. We just aren't executing it. So get back to the basics of execution. It's amazing when you sit down with an organization and they start doing those things in a very disciplined way. The time to results, the time to improvement is amazingly short. It's invigorating because people start seeing themselves become successful again and they start seeing themselves refocus on what really drives the business. It takes some courage. And I think today we have these kind of social pressures around a silver bullet mentality or a miracle cure mentality and so on and so forth. Frankly, the miracle cure to sales performance is disciplined execution. It's boring, it's unsexy. It's tedious, it's detailed, and all that. But just doing the things you teach your clients to do and doing them every day produces results.
0: This is something that really strikes a chord with me. One of the lessons that I teach is do less but better on purpose and slow down to speed up. I think too often we take on too much and there's this scope creep around the job salespeople have one job go to the bank and if it doesn't help you go to the bank then the key question is why are you doing it now that doesn't mean that you go in with the intent of trying to just take money from somebody because i think your intent has to be that you are attempting to understand whether or not you can help the prospect or the customer. And if you can, are you the right person or the right organization to do that? And if you're not, you need to address it and say, you know, Dave, we're the wrong people to help. And then you can walk away and concentrate your energy on what needs to be done. Now, the net result of that is that people spend their time on lots and lots of busy activity. So managers, one thing I see happening a lot is upward delegation. A salesperson comes to them with a problem and very often leaves the problem on the manager's desk in their office and they leave with it. So a really useful rule as a manager is nothing that comes in stays with me. It has to go out with you when we're done. And learning how to say no gracefully There's a lovely tactic that I teach my management clients to do, which is, Dave, you know, this sounds really important and it needs my undivided attention. Unfortunately, I can't give that to you at the moment. And then they look at their watch and say, why don't you come back at 10 past five? I can spare you 15 minutes then. And between now and then, what I'd like you to do is write down the three things on one sheet of paper that you've already tried to do to fix the problem yourself why you believe they didn't work, and the one question that you want me to help you solve. And 97% of those problems disappear because every interruption costs them seven minutes recovery time. So what I see a lot of is managers spending their entire working day during pay time hours dealing with interruptions. The average that I'm seeing is 32 interruptions a day. Now that's a scary, scary number. Because that's the best part of eight to 10 hours in recovery time, as well as doing the job that they're paying other people to do. And what I'm seeing also is managers carrying a bag. I get it in a small company, but in a large company, no manager should carry a personal sales quota. All of their accounts should be handed on to their salespeople because their job is to get the best out of their people. But because they're busy trying to make quota, they don't. So they don't set time aside for coaching, for windscreen training. They don't spend time on helping their salespeople to rehearse and to plan. And so it's a vicious circle. So what do you recommend that senior leaders do in terms of changing the culture of their sales organization so that they understand that managers not only have permission, but it is incumbent, it's mandated on them
1: to do that? i think there are a number of things i think first one getting the right people in the right roles is critical if you don't have the right people in the right roles regardless of what you do you're going to fail so whether it's putting the right managers in the job whether it's hiring the right salespeople, and so on you have to get the right people in the right roles number two is they have to clearly understand what their job is and they have to be given the training, resources, and coaching to do their job. Number three is, and this seems like such obvious and silly kind of stuff, but it's the stuff that distracts us from productivity is what are the things that are going to stop in the organization? We get involved with very large organizations that have, I mean, wickedly smart people, but serious performance problems. And, you know, what they do is they keep layering program after program after program on the people. They keep layering more and more things that people have to do without looking at what they stop. We just say, get back to the basics of the job. Look at at all the things that you need to stop doing. And For instance, we go in and people ask us to help them develop new initiatives that drive productivity. And one of my first questions is okay, we can do that, what two or three things are you going to stop? Because if you don't stop doing those, you won't have the time to implement what you're asking me to implement. And that is so kind of intuitively obvious, but we get caught up in the day-to-day rush of what we do, what our to-do lists have to do, and all that sort of stuff that we don't step back and start looking at the insanity that we're creating for ourselves and for our people. Sometimes it requires an outside person to do this and you know, all because we see things that because you're caught up in it every day, you don't see. So those are a couple of things. Then it's back to just kind of the fundamentals of disciplined execution. It's putting the right metrics in place and tracking them and, and those kinds of things. And then it's having the courage to stick to it. Lots of times we see people, I was involved in a project that with a small company, the people were very angry with me because they said we didn't produce results. But it was a program that required about six months to produce results. And after 30 days, they said, gee, things haven't turned around. We're going to stop it. It's just bad and ill-informed behaviors most of the time it's done with good intent. And so you have to do things. There's another thing around kind of habit formation. If you look at the data around sales training is that 90% of sales training is not done 30 days after they've gone through the sales training. So they've wasted lots of time and lots of money. And so it, it gets back to this whole thing of basic execution. And... It's changing habits. So I think we need to, a lot of where I'm spending my time right now is around organizational habit formation. We look at kind of our New Year's resolutions. I made a New Year's resolution to hit the gym every day. (laughs) That lasted about two weeks. And then it got to a few times a week. Then it got to once a week. And now I haven't been to the gym two weeks. Well, I have all the intention of doing that. I just haven't created that habit. Well, we have the same kind of thing that exists within organizations. How do we create organizational habits around great execution? And so, and I think that requires very, very strong disciplined leadership. I talk a lot about disciplined execution. I think disciplined execution has three components, disciplined people, disciplined thinking, and disciplined action.
0: That's fantastic. Finishing on that note, I think is really poignant. And if you're listening, really have a serious think about what it is that you should be doing, what actually moves the boat forward, rather than being a distraction, and really focus on disciplined execution. So Dave, a couple of questions to wrap up on. Who are you listening to, reading, watching, that influences you that you think, yeah, they're really good recommendations for the listeners to pay attention to?
1: Mostly I'm learning and listening to people outside of sales. One of the my best go-to resources is the Farnham Street blog. What they really do is talk a lot about critical thinking, problem solving, building disciplined models, disciplined execution, and those kinds of things. So, so the Farnham Street blog is probably my best go-to resource Do
0: you know what the Um, URL for that is?
1: I think it's fs.blog.
0: fs.blog,
1: okay. So that's the best resource I'd point people to.
0: Okay, fantastic. I shall look that up. And if you had a golden ticket and you could advise the idiot Dave at age 23 what not to
1: do, what would you suggest to him? I'd suggest always start with the customer and what's in it for the customer and be disciplined in your execution. It's funny when we look at, when most organizations look at designing their processes, they start from within the organization and out. The fastest, easiest, simplest, cheapest, most successful way is to start from the customer and work your way back in. So, you know, whether you're a salesperson, whether you're designing a go-to-market approach, always start with the customer and think about disciplined execution.
0: Fantastic. Dave, how can people get hold of you?
1: Probably through LinkedIn at Dave Brock, through my blog, partnersinexcellenceblog.com, or through Twitter at David A. Brock. Brilliant. And that, all those have my email, phone numbers, and all those sorts of
0: things. Dave, thank you so much. This has been insightful, inspiring, and packed of useful information. Really appreciate it.
1: Well, I really appreciate the invitation. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much,
0: Marcus. Likewise. Thank you. So this is Marcus Cowkey signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've got a guest that you'd love me to interview, then please send me their details. And if you can give them a prompt and suggest that they'd welcome a call from me, I'd love that. If you've got something interesting to say yourself, and you really feel that you can add to the story around sales, sales management, channel sales, then I'd love you to get in touch. And if you have questions that you desperately want to have answered, then please email me at marcus.cauci, C-A-U-C-H-I at sandler.com. Happy selling and thanks for listening.